Airlines Confidential with Ben Valdanza and Chris Chimes is made possible with the support of Pratt & Whitney, whose GTF engines are redefining aviation. Learn more at pwgtf.com. Aerodata, the leading edge in flight performance data. Visit aerodata.co. Aerodata is a Garmin company. Sidley Austin, the destination law firm for leading airlines and aviation companies. Visit sidley.com aviation. And Seabury Securities, global reach, global scale. seaburysecurities.com. We also welcome your business's support. Info at airlinesconfidential.com. Another welcome aboard to another edition of Airlines Confidential. I'm Chris Chimes, and it's good to have you with us. Ben, are you with us too? Indeed I am, Chris. I'm here and I wouldn't want it any other way. I think our listeners are going to enjoy our conversation with our guest, Charlie Leoka from Travelers United. He's never at a loss for insight and opinion, but first we'll get to some news items. Let's make a quick trip to Asia first, Ben. While Hong Kong has made some great strides in relaxing air travel COVID protocols, Virgin Atlantic has called it quits, pointing to Russian airspace restrictions, which make the route from London to Hong Kong untenable. My sense is there is such a steep climb for Hong Kong and Cathay Pacific in particular. So I guess, Ben, my question to you is, where do you think they need to start with regard to their rebound? It's a great question, Chris. And, you know, just the way the world geography is, there are some big hub locations around the world where serving Hong Kong is not going to have a big challenge because of Russian airspace. But others like London, Oslo, where it really would. So flights that are really long. If you make them that much longer, one, there's the issue of whether the plane can do it. Second, there's the issue of whether the schedule itself is competitive, given how long it takes to go through your hub, maybe versus through your competitive hub. Third, there's just the cost of the extra fuel, the extra crew time and everything that... Virgin may have just decided, even if the plane could make it, we wouldn't be competitive and we couldn't sort of recover in ticket prices all the extra costs it would take us. So for now, we're not going to do this. If you're Hong Kong, I don't know what you can do about that other than maybe lobby Putin to say, let Virgin fly here, right? Or something like that. And again, there are certain routes to Hong Kong and that part of Asia that wouldn't be as affected by as much. I'm guessing, for example, you could fly from the Middle East into Hong Kong and maybe the route's a little bit longer if you have to skirt under Russia, but not as much longer is if you're coming from Heathrow or Scandinavia or something like that. So I think it's great that Hong Kong is relaxing their air travel protocols, that they're welcoming visitors again. 
But I don't know what else they can do other than encouraging maybe a little more capacity from the airlines with hubs that make it feasible to serve Hong Kong without using Russian airspace. But it seems to me that in the short term, Virgin has made what is probably a pretty smart decision, even though I'm sure they're bummed out they had to make that decision. Yeah, I agree. As it relates to Cathay in particular, I think their One World partners become all the more important as as Cathay begins to reconstruct their network and expand service again. Obviously, the feed to and from their alliance partners is going to be all the more critical because, like you said, some of those long-haul points that Cathay might normally fly are also unreachable with with Russian airspace restrictions. But you you can't move the island. You're not going to change the geography. So how do you rethink? This is one of those like rethinking the business. How do you rethink the business and um, go after the obvious ways to start making money? You know, that's right. I'm going to give you an example of something that isn't exactly related, but gets to what you're saying, Chris. You know, a number of years ago, a couple of years ago, India to Phuket, Thailand was a virtually non-existent market. No airlines flew nonstop between India and Phuket, Thailand. And if you looked at the visitors to that part of Thailand, India was like 20 or 30th in terms of the number of visitors from around the world that went there. Go Air at the time started flying from a couple of cities in India to Phuket. And within about a year and a half, India jumped up to the fourth country in terms of the number of people visiting Phuket from. Basically, by adding the service and creating that connectivity, they created a new market for Phuket. And today that exists. And now several different airlines serve India to Phuket and such. So that idea, maybe there are places that haven't had service to Hong Kong that aren't affected by Russian airspace. And maybe it's a time for some airlines to think maybe we can add this now and fill in the gaps to some extent and maybe create a market that hadn't existed before. Now, Hong Kong's a lot bigger than Phuket, so maybe those markets don't exist. But it's just an example of how when things go bad, it also creates opportunity elsewhere. So let's bring it closer to home. Here in the U.S., four years after legislation was enacted by Congress, the FAA has finally implemented a new rest period rule for flight attendants, expanding the eight-hour requirements to 10 hours of rest between duty periods. Carriers have 90 days to implement the rule. So this is no surprise, but I guess my question to you, Ben, is what's going on behind the scenes with the carrier's implementing schedules and bids to adapt to the new requirements? And how does the impact of the new rules complicate the staffing challenges that still somewhat exist? Although most carriers have been very successful in recruiting flight attendants better than they have pilots. Although the implementation is after the holidays and during the post-New Year's slowdown period of travel, so that gives them some breathing space. 
Chris, yeah, I think this is going to have costs for some airlines because they're going to need more flight attendants. But like you said, they're able to recruit flight attendants and certainly train someone to be a flight attendant more quickly than to be a pilot, for example. But there are also some airlines whose union rules already require this or even more rest. So when the FAA sets a minimum standard, that's not necessarily what each airline ends up doing. They end up doing what they negotiate with their labor union around the work rules. And in many cases, the work rules that carriers like an American United and Delta would use would have rules that are more restrictive than the federal aviation regulations or the FARs. So I think it's possible, I don't know this for sure, but I think it's possible that there are some airlines who have been doing this for a while already because it's part of their union rule. And it's possible also that this has become part of the union rules in the last couple of years because everybody has known this is coming down the pike. All of that said, I don't think this is going to be that difficult for airlines to implement, but I do think it's going to be costly for some who maybe have to more quickly spur up the recruiting pipeline or maybe have to make sure that they rejig their their scheduling rules and in time to get out the bid for when this is due and such. So it's certainly going to cause some work for some companies, but it's not as big a deal as some things, I think. I, it's probably a good rule and it makes sense. So the headline doesn't match the impact. Is that what you're saying? Well, it probably doesn't in most cases. Now, some listeners may get back to us and say, Ben's totally wrong in this. Nobody's doing this today. Nobody's going to be ready. But I just don't think that's the case. I mean, you you set this up well, Chris, when you said this has been a very visible, you know, these headlights have been coming down the road for a long time and people have seen them. So it's not that this ruling came as a shock to anyone. So scheduling groups, crew scheduling groups, airlines have been thinking about this. In some cases, they were already doing it. So I think it's a big news, but I don't think it's as big of an impact, for example, is the change that Delta made and likely will carry through the industry of paying flight attendants from the time boarding begins instead of when the door closes. That's a change Delta implemented, and that's a change that is probably a bigger change for airlines to absorb. Yeah, I agree. And I think the uh, the question neither you or I could answer is why did it take the FAA so long? This week's show is brought to you by Pratt & Whitney, a world leader in aircraft engines, helicopter engines, and auxiliary power units. The Pratt & Whitney GTF engine is delivering industry-leading sustainability, mature dispatch reliability, and world-class operating costs. Now with the GTF Advantage engine for the Airbus A320neo family, the best is getting even better. Learn more at pwgtf.com advantage. 
And we want to thank Seabury Securities, a Seabury Capital Group company, and the specialty finance and investment banking firm, boasting a 25-year track record of advising aviation clients around the world. Their award-winning and widely respected team has superior industry knowledge, as well as an unmatched depth of relationships with decision makers in industry, finance, and government. Explore their global research scale at seaburysecurities.com. Finally, Ben, we talk periodically about legroom, seat comfort, and other such creature comfort matters related to airline seats. I've got a call at this petition filed last week by the consumer group Flyer Rights to ask the FAA to establish minimum seat sizes for aircraft. What do you think? This is really interesting, Chris. In a way, the FAA implicitly does this today in that the FAA sets a maximum number of seats that could go on any airplane. They do this based on how quickly the plane can be evacuated. They have evacuation standards that are required, and they say you can't evacuate quickly enough if you have more than X number of seats. And so in a way, by saying the maximum number of seats that can be on each plane, they kind of imply what the size of the seat is, but it is different than what this group, what Flyer Rights is saying they want to do, because they're saying we want to put a standard on that each and every seat has to be either at least this wide or this big or something like that. It's a real interesting idea whether or not you could set a seat standard and still hold to the FAA standard of how many people it is to have safely on an airplane or whether those numbers would reduce. That's the real interesting thing to me. If you set a seat standard such that you couldn't put as many seats on the plane as the FAA today allows, then the only thing that moves at that point is prices go up for everyone. Because if you can't have as many seats, well, you're still going to burn as much fuel. You're still going to pay the pilots and flight attendants what you pay them today. You're still going to pay the same price to Airbus or Boeing for your plane. So if you have fewer people on the plane, everybody has to pay more. And I don't think the flyer rights group is thinking about that consequence of this idea. Now, if there's a solution that allows the setting a standard for an individual seat that doesn't violate the existing FAA safety minimums, then maybe that's a way to thread the needle. Yeah, I think the evacuation of the aircraft and the safety of passengers related to seat layout is the most relevant issue here. If you read their petition and the press coverage, there's a bunch of, and I don't mean to criticize Paul Hudson and the Flyer Rights Group, they you know they work hard for the causes they believe in, but there's just a lot of things thrown into this. And my sense is the technology of modern seats, the seats are getting slimmer, but where you sit isn't necessarily getting smaller. Maybe we're getting a little bigger, and so it feels like we're getting smaller. But 
I'm not sure that's for the FAA to decide with regard to those kinds of matters related to the seats. It's really, can this aircraft be evacuated? You know, I personally think that size 36 pants are getting a lot smaller, so I'd like them to look at that as well. Um, but I'm just kidding. But, you know, there's, the, you know there, there's a bunch of issues where we as a society might be changing because of our age and just lifestyle habits. But I'm not sure that the actual seat where you're sitting is getting smaller. And so the connection between that and passenger health and safety is kind of a very crooked, dotted line. Well said, Chris. And it's possible that they will say, no, they've been too small forever. We just want to make them bigger because everybody's getting bigger. But again, there's lots of consequences of that decision. Yes. Well, coming up, our chat with Charlie Leoka, which is brought to you in part by Sidley Austin, the destination law firm for leading airlines and aviation companies transforming the skies. From the ramp to the boardroom, Sidley provides the broadest range of legal services to clients on the most critical issues facing our industry today. Sidley combines unmatched experience with top-tier capabilities across a vast global footprint. Visit sidley.com aviation for more information. This portion of Airlines Confidential is sponsored in part by Aerodata the leading edge in flight performance data. Visit aerodata.co. Aerodata is a Garmin company. Welcome back to Airlines Confidential, and we're very excited to have with us today Charlie Leoka, the president of Travelers United. Charlie, welcome to the show. Hey, glad to be here. Well, like all of our guests, why don't you start out and tell our listeners about yourself and how you got into this role at Travelers United? Well, how I got into the role is a long, a long story. But for a long time, I've been a journalist. I've been a travel writer. And back during the, oh, let's say the early 2000s in 1990, actually all the way back to 1990, I we had the big problem with... Um, with Northwest Airlines when they uh, had the problems with the Valentine's Day problem issue. And I started a website called ticked.com. And I worked on that together with Christopher Elliott. And we eventually morphed that into the nonprofit, uh, into a nonprofit called Consumer Travel Alliance in 2009. And then in 2014, we became a membership organization and changed the name to Travelers United. And that's where we are right now. And since we did all that together, Chris and I have kind of split officially, but not in reality. Uh, he's writing for major papers and newspapers, and he's got a troubleshooter site set up. And I'm focusing on my nonprofit work with Congress, DOT, and DOJ, and other stakeholders. So that's sort of the bird's eye view of how we came to be and where we are today. So, Charlie, many people know you as being an airline consumer advocate like you've just laid out uh, for many years. Tell us some of the changes you believe you've been successful in making happen. Well, the big changes that I noticed or which have come about is that when I first came to D.C., I found out that, that advocacy groups just were not spending time walking the halls of Congress. They were busy writing press releases. They were busy 
uh, sending out lawsuits and stuff like that, but they weren't really talking with the people who were working in the Commerce Committee, let's say, or working at the House T&I Committee. That's Transportation and Infrastructure Committee. And so I started out by going out and meeting everybody. And I tried to meet all the people, uh, the Airline Association, the Travel Agent Association, the Distribution Association, and so on. And I also had a lot of talk with the actual airlines, the actual travel agents, and hotel associations and car rental companies. So the big change has been that I came in and I was really the first advocacy group that spent time talking to Congress and talking to DOT and talking to DOJ. And that's the big difference that we made when we came and we started to work. And now we've got an organization set up where we've got about 10 big consumer organizations which are now working with DOT, and DOT now has regular meetings with us uh, about what's going on in terms of consumer protections. Incidentally, that's how I met you, Chris, too. You were working with one of the airline distribution companies, as I, re- as I recall. Exactly. I think well, we first met when I was at Orbitz. But I want to ask you to brag a little bit and tell us what you think some of the accomplishments you've been able to affect uh, during this advocacy period of your career? Well, the big benefits to consumers were things like the uh, 24-hour rule, where if you made a mistake, and I call it also the fat finger rule, you could go back and you you have 24 hours to change your, your reservations without any change fees and so on. That was one big change. We got the um, the denied boarding compensation and the baggage uh, fees set up so that they were automatically increased every two years, which was one really, uh, really big thing. And the denied boarding rules were set up differently. We got the DOT, the complaint system set up, and and it's really been very, very good for uh, for consumers and it makes DOT work a lot better. And one other thing that we got changed is we now have a consumer advocate at DOT. I still don't have it working the way I'd like it to work, but we're getting there. And at least we got that through committee. And this was a case where the chairman of the Senate Commerce Committee and the chairman of the House T&I Committee worked together to get this set up because they wanted to have something which said consumers are uh, served by DOT, as well as having just the airline served. Well, Charlie, you have argued, among lots of things, that airlines need better rules and policies around carrying sick passengers. Explain your thinking on this and maybe how you would stop people from abusing this kind of rule if one were to be put in place. Well, the whole argument began when I was over in Spain and I had pneumonia and I was flying back on an airline and I went to the airline and I said, look, I've got pneumonia. I'll be happy to stay here for three or four days and just sleep because that's all I could do at that moment. And uh, and they said, that's fine. You could do that. But let's say you, you've got a frequent flyer ticket. We have no frequent flyer seats available. And so if you want to go back, you have to pay the full fare, which is like $2,000 one way in those days. 
And so I said, well, what are my alternatives? They says, the alternative is you just fly home sick. I said, yeah, but I'm, I'm contagious. And they said, well, we don't care. Either you fly home sick or you pay us uh, 2000 plus to get home. I said, okay. So I just flew home sick. And of course, everybody who got to sit next to me was just thrilled. And even when I was in uh, sitting and waiting uh, for my change, uh, the flight changes in, uh, in the United States, I had the, um, the problem of nobody would sit next to me. <laughs> if I sat anywhere, they all got up and moved. So I wasn't looking too good, but I was still flying. And that was one of the real problems. And when you ask a question of how I would keep someone from feigning illnesses, I don't have any real good ideas right now. Uh, part of the, the changes in the actual airfares and so on, that would, uh, would change a lot and that would keep people from changing their flights. But I'm certain that the airlines, if they put their mind to it, together with consumer organizations can develop a good solution. So was there a, a change in policy on the sick passenger issue that you were able to affect or is it still something you're working on? I'm sorry to be so dense on that. Well, it's, it's something we're still working on. And when we had the CARES Act at the beginning of the, um, of the COVID problem, I asked and I sent information and emails and I spoke with people at the House T&I Committee and at the Commerce Committee, the Senate Commerce Committee, and both organizations said that it was out of their hands and it had to be handled by the uh, Senate and the House leadership. And so in the end, nothing happened. And uh, my argument was, we're spending all this money just because people are gonna get sick. And that's, that's why they're not flying. Let's take care of the problem right now, as long as we're doing, you know, we're, we're handing out billions of dollars. That's with a B. But uh, I couldn't get anyone excited about that because they wanted to go ahead and get this through. I know another issue you've been working on, Charlie, is, well, hopefully it's behind us, but was the emotional support animal role. Were people abusing this in your mind or where did you come down as a consumer advocate? Well, as a consumer advocate, I worked very carefully and closely with uh, the Department of Transportation. Uh, they had a whole series of, um, of meetings with a lot of wheelchair associations and sick passenger associations and so on. And they came up with a set of rules, which I think really fixed the whole problem. What happened was during the support animal uh, issue and the emotional support animals, there was a real loophole. And so everybody brought any animal they could and they could just go on online and they could get a, a, a certificate. It said, by the way, Fluffy, which happens to be an ostrich, is a support animal. So you have to take them on board the flight or peacocks or they, uh, I was waiting for someone to come up with an elephant, but that never happened. But we did have a lot of people who were really abusing the whole thing. And so under the new rules, I think that it's pretty much been solved now. They came down to where the actual animals, which are now cons considered to be emotional support animals, must be dogs and that they are now trained as support animals and they have papers. And so the airlines now are pleased and I'm pleased because I'm not sharing the, the cabin with uh, 
literally a score of animals like I was once upon a time. And I had a small baby, one flight, I had a little baby puppy who was called an emotional support animal. And that's how they were transporting him across the country from DC all the way across to, um, to California. So the new systems are working now. And I think that it's better for everybody involved. I think that is an example of the system ultimately working right. Chris and I were at U.S. Airways together when that airline carried a pig from Philly to L.A., I think it was, in first class. Is that right, Chris? Yeah, exactly. Um, you know, I tell the story, too, that I was on a flight probably two years ago where this family got on with two dogs that they had service dog vests that they'd obviously bought off Amazon or somewhere. And the dogs were like jumping around on the seats and all over. And I'm like, you know, service dogs don't do this. Okay. <laughs> they Service dogs are there to serve. They don't like explore and leave their, leave their human companion and jump up on furniture or whatever else. And it was just so obvious. And the frustration of the flight crew uh, to that situation was obvious as well. Right. It's really hard. And I remember that story about the pigs flying, you know, and so I and I remember one of the headlines that I wrote was like when pigs fly. It was just a great story. More of our conversation with Charlie Leoka in just a moment. But a reminder that if you're in the air transport business, you need to know the name Aerodata. For three decades, Aerodata has helped airlines get more from their operations with its aircraft performance, weight and balance and load planning tools and more. Visit aerodata.co to learn more and see how the Aerodata team can make a difference for your air carrier operation. Charlie, there are some new rules now being proposed. Tell us about these rules and your views on them and forecast for us the likelihood of something new actually being enacted soon. Well, right now we've got basically three big rules or rulemakings which are in effect or they're now being discussed. The first one is refunds of baggage fees when the baggage is not delivered or when it's delayed or if it's damaged. Right now, if your baggage is lost, you get your baggage fee back. That's the $35 that you spent. But if you pay $35 to have your bag delivered together with you at the next airport and the bag doesn't show up and it doesn't show up for 24 hours or 12 hours now, you're still stuck and and it just doesn't work. And so this is something which is now being uh, discussed by DOT. They are coming up with a certain number of hours that the uh, airlines have in order to uh, get something done. And I'm pushing DOT to say, no, there's, you know, when you pay money to have something delivered, just like with FedEx, if it doesn't get there by 930 in the morning, you get your money back. And so... I think that that's, that should come through. Uh, the next thing is family sitting together. In a family sitting together rule, we've already gotten it passed by Congress. Uh, I heard that nothing was going to happen by D, from DOT. We saw that. And so I got Congress to actually write a, a law which said that everyone 13 years of age down to two years of age could sit with a family member. And that was passed by Congress, but then it was ignored by uh, DOT. First, it was ignored for about eight months by the Obama administration. Then it was ignored by 
the Trump administration that said they just didn't want any new regulations. And finally, we ended up with a, um, a law, which now they've got a rulemaking. It's not ignored, but still two years on, and we still don't have anything from the Biden administration. So we're looking at that, and that is coming up. And we're trying to make that as friendly as possible for consumers and for families. And then the final big change is, and this you've just heard about recently, it's that the president has announced his new competition uh, regulations. And part of these competition regulations include ancillary fees and basically telling people how much the ancillary fees are going to be on board a flight. So right now, this is sort of like deja vu all over again for me, because way back in 2011, I think, Chris, I think you were there too. We had a whole big argument about trying to get the ancillary fees shared with distribution companies and the airlines won in the end. The only thing we could get is we got all of the uh, full fare advertising rule where all of the costs of flying and all the mandatory fees were included together and they had to be used in the advertising. The airlines weren't happy with that. They took us to court. It went all the way to the Supreme Court. The Supreme Court finally, they refused to hear the case. And so they let stand the uh, district court ruling. But, you know, today the new rule says that we now can be told in and during the booking process how much all of these fees are. So consumers will now have an option of looking at that. And the airlines have made the argument that some people don't want to see these all these fees. It's too much information. Other people don't have enough information. And I think the DOT has really tried to make the rule good for everybody. They've got, you know, you can push a button and you'll get no information on any of the ancillary fees. You push a different button, you get all the information. But we'll see what happens. No matter what, it's going to be at least another two and two to two and a half years before this comes into effect. So we've got a long time to argue about it. I've got to ask you, Charlie, uh, from your point of view, why do some airlines insist on taking some of these positions that invite regulation? Well, I think that they they just don't want regulation, period. And I wouldn't mind them saying that they don't want regulations and coming up with something on their own, which could have happened very easily in terms of the uh, family sitting together rule. Every airline that I know will bends over backwards at the gate to get people moved around. But if they didn't have to have that um, brouhaha at the gate and when people are boarding, it would make life so much easier. But in their fear of regulations, they haven't come up with anything on their own in order to handle the problem. So I think that that's really foolish on the airlines part. And as much as I kind of cajole and I talk with the airlines a lot, I have not been able to get them to change that attitude. Charlie, the Consumer Advocacy Office at the DOT, as you know, is kind of a vestige of when the industry was fully regulated. It was one function of the original Civil Aeronautics Board that continued on, even as that 
organization was shuttered. Do you think this office still has a positive role to play in the industry? And can the secretary of the DOT affect the tone of this office in some way? Or how do you think that is all working and should work? Well, right now, it's not working very well. But we did in the last FAA reauthorization bill, we did get a consumer advocate appointed at DOT. And so now DOT has a mission of including consumer advocacy and consumer protections. Now, the problem is, is they still haven't added this into their, um, into their mission statement, but hopefully we'll get that done soon. So even though we had a consumer advocate office, no one was really manning it other than in general, they said, oh, if we make it good for the airlines, it's going to be good for all the people too. Right now, we've really seen how a secretary of transportation who is really doing his job can really be a powerful leader. And when DOT came out with this new dashboard to deal with all the uh, cancellations and all of the uh, delays which were coming up during this last summer, you really saw everything change. Overnight, the airlines worked their butts off to come up with ways that they get more checkboxes. They didn't want an X in any section of that whole of that chart. And so they found ways to give people a, well, of course, they were already doing it, but now they, they made it more public that you could get meal vouchers and maybe you got 25 bucks. And maybe that's good for at an air, at an airport these days, it might be good for about a Snickers and a cup of coffee, but at least it's something. And they said that you got a, a certain kind of distressed passenger rate on your uh, hotel, if you could find a hotel, and then the airline would pay you back in airline script. So there were kind of different systems that came through. And all that's because we had a strong, uh, the, well, the so far, and to this point, a very weak Depart uh, Secretary of Transportation decided that he was going to do something. And that made all the difference in the world. Now, the problem with all these rules is that it's only DOT putting it up and they don't tell anyone. They're not taking this DOT dashboard and putting it up at the airports because the airlines won't want it. And therefore, we don't have any of the uh, other things which I've been pushing for for a long time to have a, a poster put up at different airports saying, if your luggage is lost, these are your rights and put that right over the luggage carousel. Or at the gate, you know, if you're bounced off, the, off of a flight, these are your regulations and these are your, um, your rights. And if they had that kind of information and if they were more transparent about the actual rules that DOT has, we'd be far, far better. And I think that when we look at the overall question of DOT saying, we need more transparency in airline fees. We also need more transparency in airline regulations from DOT. So, Ben, cover your ears. Charlie, this is just between us. No one's listening. <laughs> tell me what you think about, from an airline consumer point of view, tell us what you think about the uh, JetBlue Spirit merger proposal. 
Oh, the JetBlue Spirit merger. Is, are they really merging? I guess so. First, I guess that I have to say that I think that overall it will be better for consumers. And I know that all the other consumer organizations are saying fewer airlines means less competition. However, in this case, we've got a new fact that we've got to look at. And that's it. The airline industry is really broken into either people that are traveling for leisure or people that are traveling for business. And if you're traveling for business right now, whatever happens with the big three, American, Delta, and United, goes across the board. And they don't really pay attention to the low-cost carriers at all. They don't even pay attention to, uh, even if they're a big carrier like Southwest, they're still not handing out their free baggage and so on because they make too much money from that. So I think that JetBlue will not be a spirit. They're just going to use the airplanes, use the pilots, and use the crews to grow JetBlue. And that way, they'll be able to grow much more quickly. Next, if JetBlue changes their prices, it actually is something that the big three care about. And they actually will change their prices. And we've seen that happen now in a number of different uh, markets where JetBlue does um, compete nose to nose with a one of the big three. And the th third thing is that they the ultra low cost carriers, it's a lot easier to get into that business. And you can always start small and then you grow, but you can't start big and then get bigger that easily. And this is an opportunity where JetBlue really has a chance to change the competitive landscape. And finally, I mean, I'm opposing the JetBlue and American Airlines Alliance, but that can be brought to fruition by taking the JetBlue Spirit deal and sort of working it together with the JetBlue Alliance or the JetBlue American Airlines Alliance and come up with a, with a different kind of, of arrangement. So I'm in favor of it. I'm in favor of the JetBlue Spirit deal. And I think that the JetBlue Spirit deal will also turn out in the long run to make the JetBlue American Airlines deal even better. Um, but there are still bits and pieces of it that I really don't, don't agree with, especially with the DCA and LaGuardia code sharing arrangements. Can I listen again? Yeah, you can You can take your fingers out of your ear. <laughs> okay, great. Well, Charlie, this has been great. Before we let you go, though, tell our listeners how they can learn more about Travelers United and how they could support your group if they want to. Okay, well, travelersunited.org. It's on the web. And we do passenger rights stories every day. And they focus on rules, regulations, and mandatory hotel fees and on rental car issues. So you can join the organization. It doesn't cost you a penny to become a member. You'll get the newsletter and that's it. But if you want more, we do have a cybersecurity package, which you can use around the corner when you go to McDonald's or you go to Starbucks or anything, which gives you a VPN. It gives you a password manager. And you get a, um, especially if you're a traveler, you'll get a Swiss uh, server, which is falls under the Swiss privacy laws. So you know that the benefits that you get in terms of privacy will really uh, work out well. And then next year, we're working at putting together, and it will be ready at the beginning of the year, 
we're putting together a passenger bill of rights app. So you can go right on your cell phone and you can look up your passenger bill of rights and the cybersecurity package and the passenger bill of rights will be $49 a year. And everything else though is it's all supported by that same $49. Well, Charlie, it's always great to talk to you. I think you need to not hold back as much uh, moving forward though. You seem to be a little passive in your, in your points of view. I'm just teasing you, but um, <laughs> you, you are, you're clearly a, a passionate and effective advocate for not just airline passengers, but travelers in general. So uh, we're glad you shared your uh, thoughts with us today. Okay. Well, thank you very much. I really appreciate being on with you guys and hopefully we'll be able to do it again in another six months or a year. Well, especially if we have some more consumer protections passed, right, Charlie? That would be really good. So we'll (laughs) see what ends up happening. Well, thanks again, Charlie, and we'll be right back with more Airlines Confidential. Promotional consideration by TheAirchive.net, the hub of the history of commercial aviation. TheAirchive.net is now boarding. This portion of Airlines Confidential is sponsored in part by Sidley Austin. From the ramp to the boardroom, the destination law firm for leading airlines and aviation companies transforming the skies. Welcome back to Airlines Confidential. It was good to have Charlie Leoka chat with us, and now we'll take some listener questions and comments. Please keep your questions coming via email at questions at airlinesconfidential.com or visit airlinesconfidential.com and follow the prompts to submit your comment or question. Chris Arnold from Dallas is making us smarter about the issue of departure information on boarding passes after we took a question about why terminal info is not included on the printed boarding pass. He writes, years ago, Delta Airlines used to print departure gates on boarding passes to make it easier for connecting passengers. But fast forward to a more complex operation in today's world, there are many factors that would cause your gate to change. With technology today, it's much more reliable to use an airline's app, local information monitors known as FIDs, or even Google for more accurate departure gate information. With the use of smartphones these days, everyone can make their lives easier by checking their departure gate on that airline's app. Hope this helps and love the podcast. Keep up the great work. Arnold, thanks for the uh, comments. Um, The original question was about printing terminal information, not gate information, but you make, I think, the most valid point of all, which is, a printed piece of paper is not the most efficient way to communicate with your passengers with technology today. So as it relates to the original question about why don't they print a terminal on the boarding pass, again, as you're arriving at an airport, there are lots of signs, whether it be via Uber or taxi or you're driving or whatever else, directing you to the right terminal based on your airline that you're flying. I realize sometimes there's a code share involved. Your ticket might say United when it's really Lufthansa or vice versa. Um, But again, that's where the information is so critical, but that it, it is out there. And as Arnold points out, with technology today in real time, it's going to be much easier to make that available on a FIDS or a phone or in some other manner. So, you know, I think there's a lot of effort 
invested in signage at airports. It can always be better. Some airports do it better than others, and some airlines do it better than others. But I think most people would rather lose their wallet than their phone now. And I think, you know, <laughs> traveling with a, a smartphone is just um, imperative. So, but Arnold, thanks for the input. Yeah, it's a good question from Arnold. And one thing that hasn't gone away, at least yet, Chris, is I've noticed when traveling through Atlanta or Dallas or another big hub, it's still not uncommon to get off the plane and have an agent there who is just telling people connecting information. So you get off the plane and say, where's the flight to Louisville? And they say, it's at this gate, walk in this direction, right? And that still goes on. So even if you don't want to pull out your phone right away, there's still ways to get this without printing it on the boarding pass. Yep. And then Ben, Charles from Mississippi wants you to get a little more granular on your comments about the pilot shortage. He writes, Ben, you often discuss the 15-hour rule saying that other countries put new pilots with less hours into the cockpit with very senior captains. The regional pilot shortage is at its heart a problem of retaining very senior captains who want to go to the majors. These are exactly the people larger airlines poach. It doesn't matter how many new first officers an airline hires if they can't retain the captains. That is the pay shortage problem at the regionals. I agree with Charles. That's exactly right. And retaining captains at the regionals is the way you could return to an apprentice-based system. That said, making it possible to hire pilots at something less than the relatively arbitrary 1,500 hours rule, which again, nobody else in the world uses, would still make it easier to create a more robust pipeline in that process. So you're absolutely right, Charles, but that in and of itself doesn't justify the 1,500-hour rule, I think. And then finally, we have a note from Tom in Dallas, and he writes, Ben and Chris, I thought it might be appropriate for a listener shout-out. I've lived in Dallas for about 10 months now. Even though Love Field is right next to where I live, I work near DFW, so I almost exclusively fly out of DFW. I've been extremely impressed with how they handle the parking. DFW's layout presents many challenges to a local traveler flying out on American as they now operate out of four terminals that aren't connected by landslide people movers. However, DFW has really stepped it up, and between their parking reservation system, toll tag entry, shuttle system, and informative videos on social media, it really turns what could be a nightmare of a situation into something very manageable. It's not perfect, but they really have thought through how to make the best of a very unideal setup. And after giving up on American Airlines several years ago, I've given them another look since I'm now flying out of DFW so much. They really used to do a lousy job getting people out ahead of weather. I'd look at the radar, see the impending storm, call and ask if I could get out early, and I would be told a flat out no. However, since moving here, I've had really good experiences on American This last Thursday, a round of storms was predicted to come through North Texas after lunch. I called AA the night before, and they were happy to move me to an earlier flight. It's so much easier to get a customer out that's willing to go early 
than to try to scramble on the other end of the storm to reaccommodate them on already full flights. Just want to give some credit where credit should be given. So, uh, Tom, thanks for that note. We had Sean Donahue, the CEO of DFW, on uh, earlier this year. We talked about the parking. I'm a consumer experiencing their parking situation uh, on a regular basis, and they do do a great job with prepaid parking and the like. I do have to point out, though, there are times when I have prepaid for parking and I cannot find a spot. And so that's a little frustrating, but again, I think that they use a pretty good job of inventory and revenue management to not to oversell the pre-parking, but um, that that's something they still have to fix. And a couple of the parking lots still lack the little green and red lights that give you some indication uh, where there might be a spot. Um, I circled around the Terminal C parking garages for about 40 minutes. The other day, it was a little frustrating. But they do do a great job. It it was not set up to operate like it does today as a major hub with these terminals so scattered. But uh, they do do that uh, very, very well. And I think Americans' operators and their operating team have uh, done a, a very good job about trying to bring things along in a more customer-friendly manner. So thanks for that note. Ben, I don't know if you have anything else to add. I mean, the one thing I'll say is, well, I certainly appreciate this note, Tom. Thank you. DFW as an airport originally wasn't really built to be the connecting facility it has been for a long time, right? The fact that you can drop someone off almost right near their gate makes it at least originally the idea was really good for local people that you could pick someone up close to their gate or drop them off close to their gate. You compare the way DFW originally was laid out, for example, to Atlanta, which has the common check-in point and then everybody takes a train out to one of their peers. Clearly, Atlanta was built to be a big connector. But I think it's great what you say about how both AA has become more friendly about getting customers out early against weather. And while I've flown in and out of DFW quite a bit in the last number of years, I've not actually driven and parked at the airport. So I appreciate what you said about how nice it's become or about how easy they've made it. But I'm cautious about what Chris said about driving around for 40 minutes and not finding a spot. Yeah. And, you know, American does their best to try to like, I just got back from a overnight trip to LA and you know the outbound and the return operate kind of out of the same terminals and gates but sometimes that doesn't work and so like I parked at C and I came in at A at 11 o'clock at night and then you got to slog over on the uh, interterminal train to get your car so that adds to the trip but again you can't fix that basic layout of the airport um, it was meant to be a spread out multi-terminal operation, and that's what they're going to have to live with. Well, Chris, my shout out this week goes to London Heathrow for finally ending their daily passenger caps. These have been in place for a while and have been in place in part because of labor shortage and other things, but they're gone now and they will schedule flights like they were doing back in 2019. And I think that's great. In their release on this, they made the point that they didn't like the caps, but didn't want to 
remove them until they felt confident that they could deal with that level of capacity again. But I hope what it means is that flights back into Heathrow spur up again, those that have been canceled. And it's great that Heathrow is sort of setting the trend that I hope the rest of Europe can follow with shortly. I agree with that one, Ben. I think the only thing I would add is now I hope they reduce those ridiculous taxes and fees for passengers transiting through Heathrow. And my shout out is to ICAO, the International Civil Aviation Organization, whose members have voted to oust Russia as one of the 36 member nations on the organization's governing council as the result of its war on Ukraine. The 80 votes Russia received was six short of what they needed to retain the position on the council. I guess my only question is why they got 80 votes. They shouldn't have gotten that many. This is the first time a governing council member nation has ever been removed in the 78-year history of the UN-affiliated aviation body. That's a great one. My guess is those 80 votes came from countries who maybe get their oil from Russia or something like that. Yeah, or want to start flying over the Russian airspace again. No, I agree. Yeah, that's right. Well, with that, have a great week, everyone, and we'll see you next week on Airlines Confidential. Thanks for listening. This podcast is produced by Mass Media. Info at massmedia.net.